0: This is Jeff Dice, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. I've really been looking forward to this one. I have for really a couple years now I've been hoping to and planning on covering Murray Rothbard's two-volume, albeit truncated, an Austrian perspective on the history of economic thought. So, this is one of the last things he completed in life. Uh, it, it's really a fascinating uh, survey of of economics as a field and as a profession over several centuries. and it's it's not a book that I was particularly familiar with prior to coming to the Mises Institute. Uh, but I'm glad I am now. And so I know we have talked about covering it. I know we've also talked about covering Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. So maybe this this uh, a survey will be a springboard for that. But I thought there'd be no person better equipped to be my guest, uh, to be our professional economist on the show this week than our own Dr. Patrick Newman, who, of course, many of you know as not only a professor of economics, but also a fellow here at the Mises Institute he is uh, not only an economic historian in his own right and teaches uh, our courses on that subject in our graduate offering here, but he is also uh, someone who's very knowledgeable about Murray Rothbard's life. So, uh, Patrick, welcome. I guess you're a historian of Rothbard as well as economic thought. Uh,
1: yeah, so thanks for having me on, Jeff, and I guess that's an accurate way of describing it. I'm a, I'm a historian of Rothbard as well as a historian of economic thought and just a general economic historian.
0: Well, so first and foremost, I mentioned this was a huge undertaking by Rothbard. And of course, when he was working on this in the early 90s, he didn't know that he would pass away before he was able to complete it. But where was he, I guess, in life and in his career and what prompted him to write this book?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's, a great, uh, that's a great starting off point. So Rothbard really had kind of four major projects in his life. As we all know, he was sort of a
0: polymath who
1: did not just uh, focus on one sort of subject, but he switched off into multiple uh, disciplines. So he wrote Man, Economy, and State, this giant economics treatise in the 1950s. He wrote uh, a five-volume series on early American history, uh, Conceived in Liberty. He wrote that in the 1960s. He wrote a uh, treatise on the ethics or the political philosophy of natural rights libertarianism. We know this as The Ethics of Liberty. He wrote that primarily in the 1970s. And his fourth sort of major uh, research uh, interest was history of economic thought. So in the 1980s, he wrote, uh, by and large, uh, 1980s and early 1990s, he wrote uh, the two-volume and Austrian perspective on the history of economic thought. So this is something that had always interested him. Uh, in the 50s, Rothbard was very interested in economic thought. Uh, I know reading his, 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 his archival letters that he was, uh, he, he was very interested in it, uh, especially because of his uh, dissertation advisor, Joseph Dorfman, and uh, Joseph Schumpeter's uh, A History of Economic Analysis that came out in the 1950s. Uh, really the major inspiration or the major reason why he wrote this book was because Mark Skousen had commissioned him to write a short history of economic thought, really kind of beginning with Adam Smith going through all of the great thinkers. It was supposed to be kind of a Austrian response to uh, Hale Broner's The Worldly Philosophers. And instead, his project, uh, the book project, like many of his other projects, sort of grew and grew into a a treatise in its own right. So he was uh, really working on this as he started to become affiliated with the Mises Institute. This was, as you said, his, his last major project, and it's sort of like his, his final magnum
0: opus, I guess. And so the first volume is Economic Thought before Adam Smith. The second volume is Classical Economics. And w- what would have been the third or final volume?
1: So the, the third volume was supposed to, so unfortunately, Rothbard did not, obviously, we know he, he passed away uh, unexpectedly, so he did not uh, finish the third volume, which was supposed to uh, analyze the development of economic thought from the marginal revolution of 1871, you know Carl Menger, Leon Ball Ra, William Stanley Jevons, uh, up to basically the World War II uh, period, which is really when Rothbard was studying Uh, economics. So that was kind of the third volume that he was supposed to write in the mid-1990s, but unfortunately, uh, he was not able to.
0: Now, we'll link to this book, We, meaning the Mises Institute, we publish this, the two volumes, each in hardcover and sell them at a good price. Uh, But it was originally... Uh intended to be published by Edward Elgar, and a lot of our academic listeners will know that as a big academic publishing house. They have the copyright uh nineteen ninety five Do you know how it came to be uh, that rothbard was i guess commissioned in a sense or had had chosen them as a publisher
1: so uh that's a great uh that's a great question so as as I, as I mentioned, he was supposed to write kind of a a, a shorter book, and the project grew bigger and bigger. And basically, by the early 90s, he was trying to find an academic publisher because this is is literally like a thousand pages on the history of economic thought. It's not exactly something you would pick up at an airport uh, bookstore. So (laughs) he was searching around uh, for uh, an academic publisher. And from what I've read in the uh, archival, uh, excuse me, in the the Rothbard archive, so his his, his private uh, letters and correspondence, because he did speak with. Uh, the Mr. Edward Elgar. Uh, Edward Elgar was interested in his, his history of economic thought. Uh, he would, the expectation Rothbard would complete it, so it would be a three-volume series, so it would be all, all inclusive. And I believe it was a favorable, at least, recommendation uh, by Mark Plough, who is a prominent, who was a prominent historian of economic thought uh, that at least uh, caused them to, to express interest. And this was in the early '90s, uh, that Rothbard had basically um, uh, signed the the contract, so to speak, and he was supposed to have the third volume done by about 1996. And he had sent in the final 2 volumes, vol—excuse me, the first two volumes—by uh, basically late 1993. So about a year before he before he died. And um, so that's 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 really uh, it. Was intended as an academic book. Uh, but it's certainly unlike many academic books. It can be read by a popular audience uh, and enjoyed thoroughly by a popular
0: audience. Did Rothbard think that he would benefit financially from going with Elgar?
1: Um, I, I I believe so. Uh, that was at least his 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 goal. I mean, he he one wanted to get a publisher, and he was going to get royalties after I believe the financial arrangements were made with, uh, with Mark Skousen, I guess, when, when any sort of uh, uh, payments that had to be, had to be made after the the changing book project. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was his goal. I think he, he wanted an academic publisher for this because it was, it was an academic work and uh, someone that would publish it basically without requiring too stringent of uh, editorial cuts. So if you wanted to get like a, a, a mass publisher, uh, you know, something like if he published uh, where he published for New Liberty, then naturally it, it, the, the book would have to be significantly cut. Uh, really, the, the interesting um, uh, major kind of change in the book was that originally Adam Smith, the whole chapter on Adam Smith, was, which is in volume one, it's kind of the, the final chapter. It might be the penultimate chapter in volume one. That was supposed to be in volume two. Uh, but then the, the the book lengths would have been would have been too different. So Rothbard just simply sort of moved it over. But I believe his goal was to have a major, uh, you know, uh, an academic publisher uh, with his work. And that would just help one with, you know, just a CV and also his perception, you know, the, the reception. Uh, more people would be interested uh, in the book. And yeah, so he 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 wanted to benefit from it.
0: Well, it's interesting. We sell this book at Mises.org, the two-volume in hardcover for twenty nine ninety five. Elgar still sells it on Amazon for $229. So there's one reason to publish with us rather than an academic house right there. But, you know, for our audience, I guess, give us your definition. What is the history of economic thought? Why, why is it important? Why should a lay reader who might otherwise have an interest in economics generally, why should they, he or she care about the history of economic thought?
1: Right, so uh, it's a it's a it's a great great question. So the, the history of economic thought is basically how economic ideas developed. So who are the important theorists uh, who developed uh, classic economic ideas? So we think about something like specialization, the law of comparative advantage, and so on. And you know why is this important? Uh, it's important because uh, it's, it, this deals with a common uh, sort of misperception that Rothbard criticized. So, a lot of people would say, Well, why should you study the history of economic thought? Economic thought isn't studied really in graduate schools anymore. It's no different than something like physics. Who cares who developed what theory in the 1800s in physics? Science always is just getting better and better. Uh, so, why study the past? You know, the, the, all the good stuff in the past just uh, just gets absorbed in the present thinkers and so on, onwards and upwards into the light. This is what's known as the Whig theory of history. Uh, this is something that Thomas Kuhn, in the Structure of Scientific Revolutions book that came out in the early '60s, uh, kind of heavily criticized, saying that well, actually, science doesn't necessarily proceed in this upward. Uh, linear path. There's a lot of zigs and zags. So sometimes good ideas get lost, and then they have to get rediscovered. In economics, this is particularly true. Where sometimes uh, thinkers of the past they came up with these great theories, but then the the the, the, the discipline developed along uh, a different line or an erroneous line. So economic thought actually uh, retrogressed, which is mm. something as anyone who is interested in Austrian economics uh, can certainly appreciate in the in the modern era.
0: Well, I would think Marx was a retrogression, but you bring up physics. I don't think that of a history of physics. I think of advances in physics. Right? If someone's going to college right now to study physics, they're studying physics as it's, I guess, as it's currently presented, and that is the culmination of lots of uh, trial and error and scientific method on the in the physical science realm. So, is 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 the difference here that we're talking about a social science?
1: Uh, in a sense, there, 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 there's a profound difference, obviously, between the natural sciences and the social sciences. You know, you're studying humans and, and human volition versus, uh, uh, you know, uh, atoms and molecules and, and, and you know, all, all, all of that stuff. Uh, but, you know, it, it could still sort of apply that, you know, when we, yeah, when you study physics, you're just trying to study the most recent ideas and, and, and what the current science is saying uh, about uh, about about the world in um, with economics, you have a uh, a different perspective where you're one again. The ideas are not necessarily uh, linear, so you want to actually see were there correct ideas in the past that did not get absorbed in current doctrine. Another important reason to study economic thought is that it's actually good to learn how people reason through problems. So how great thinkers actually develop their theories and reason through problems, because that can help uh, in the present day, especially because things just like logical reasoning, uh, philosophy, et cetera, those aren't always taught anymore in colleges uh, and really any place in, in higher education or just education in general. And it's still an important thing to, to realize that you know sometimes really smart people knew, uh, even though they've been superseded their ideas, but they, they still knew how to reason uh through arguments in a very effective way
0: so are there economists phd economists today who had zero classes in history of thought oh absolutely
1: uh history of thought is is not taught today in most mainstream graduate programs it's sort of got moved to an elective and then after that the elective just got taken away a big reason why it's not studied is that well a lot of uh economists before you know the rise of positivism and, and mathematics and statistics they just simply weren't mathematical they were so, sort of deridingly referred to as now uh, literary economists they were just using words and etc so uh, most people don't really have a solid background in economic uh, thought a phd uh, graduate students especially because they don't even really have a solid background in economics you know you don't even learn necessarily theory now you just learn, various applications of computer programming and uh, you know uh, running regressions and et cetera.
0: So were you able to study history of thought in your program at George Mason University?
1: So uh, yeah, I studied history of economic thought uh, at, at George Mason University. I also took a history of economic thought course when I was an undergraduate at Rutgers University. Uh, this was with Q Rockoff, who was Joe Salerno's dissertation advisor. Uh, at Rutgers and i took a history of economic thought course with him uh i greatly enjoyed it because you, know, you you hugh rockoff has also written a lot about the history of economic thought as well as being a prominent uh economic historian and so that kind of gave me i still actually have the notes believe it or not i still have the the, the, the notebook of of, 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 of uh, my my the notes from the uh, that class which i actually want to say is about 10 years old in the fall of 2011. Uh, but I did take a uh, history of economic thought at George Mason University. Uh, Peter Becky taught one of the classes. It was sort of a hybrid history of economic thought, if you will. Uh, and I continued to learn uh, there. So I certainly got a greater uh, understanding and appreciation of the discipline uh, more than your average uh, undergraduate and graduate student.
0: So you mentioned this Whig theory of history that in the, in the, realm of economics or other sciences, that there's this constant improvement. Of course, Rothbard objects to this. uh, But he also objects, as he makes clear in the introduction to this book, to the idea of a few great men. And that's how economic history, like most history, tends to be organized, right? In other words, uh, even Rothbard's own volumes uh, sort of revolve around Adam Smith. So what's, what's Rothbard's objection to the few great men idea?
1: Yes, yeah, so that's a uh, it's, it's 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 an interesting point that Rothbard makes because this is something that's not only in Rothbard's history of economic thought but just his general history. So traditionally, the great man his uh, the great man sort of thesis uh, is that well, when you're studying American history or you're studying the development of economics, etc., uh, you can pretty much just kind of Condense it into the uh, you know a couple great men. So if you're studying early American history, you're going to talk about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton. If you're studying uh, the history of economic thought, you're going to start off with Adam Smith, who is seen as generally the, uh, the 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 beginner, the the founder of economics. Then you go to David Ricardo, Karl Marx, Alfred Marshall, John Maynard Keynes. So this is in a sense even kind of how the the class I took with Hugh Rockoff was taught. Uh, it's just a, a pedagogical uh, device, but you just go from one great man to another, and they're the ones who uh, developed economics, and then uh, you know onwards and upwards, you have another great man and et cetera. And Rothbard's criticism of this, not only in history of economic thought, but also economic history, was that, well this isn't actually how uh, ideas developed there were a lot of lesser known figures who contributed various ideas that great thinkers got ideas from or they criticized great thinkers and caused them to revise their ideas people who pioneered in various theories that were forgotten or they just got overlooked and so they kind of you know lived in obscurity and they died you know only to be rediscovered by someone 100 years later uh, Rothbard was very influenced in this approach by his mentor, his dissertation advisor at Columbia University, uh, Joseph Dorfman, who wrote a sort of a magisterial five-volume uh, history of economic thought called The Economic Mind in American Civilization. And this is a, a, a book series that really influenced Rothbard. Uh, he, he dedicated uh, his history of thought uh, to Dorfman as well as Mises, I believe, mm-hmm. and in Dorfman's work, he basically goes through a lot of um, uh, you know, obscure thinkers in American and in, 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 in American economic thought who develop, you know, who had various ideas and how they corresponded, etc. And that's that's actually just the empirically uh, accurate uh, way, you know, the, the, just it's empirically accurate way of how a uh, doctrine develops. So Rothbard is very against that, I think. Uh, part of that might also be you know he he wasn't viewed in his time as a great man, certainly one of the he was not seen as one of the leading economists of his of his generation you know uh, you know un- unjustly in my opinion and you know he 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 thought he was contributing important ideas and so naturally there were other people like him in the past who were overlooked uh, by the profession
0: Well Patrick, please tell me in a hundred years we're not going to include Samuelson and Paul Krugman. As in this great men pantheon, please tell me that.
1: I, I, I hope I hope the names Paul Krugman and Paul Samuelson are there. They're long forgotten in a hundred years, but you know, well, we can only hope. In the pantheon, will be replaced by Austrian economists then.
0: By that time. Well, I'd like to get some of your comments on a few of the foundational texts in this area. Obviously, you mentioned. Uh, Schumpeter's history of economic analysis, which I think Rothbard mentions, uh, you know, more recently we have, I, I'm just thinking out loud here, we have the Milton Friedman Anna Schwartz book, which is more a monetary history of the U.S. Uh, we have, you know, right here in Auburn, our great friend Bob Eklund and uh, Bob Aber, who, I, who is in uh, Louisiana, I believe, wrote, uh, which is now in the sixth edition, A History of Economic Thought and Method, which is a, a really excellent survey book that I i happen to own, um, you know, talk a little bit about these books, some others that I'm missing.
1: Yeah. So one if you think about uh, the, the, the a big one that influenced Rothbard is Joseph Schumpeter's History of Economic Analysis. That book came out, uh, I want to say, in about 1954. And this was that was, uh, was very similar, actually, to Rothbard. Schumpeter started a history of, of, of economic thought, turned into this giant treatise. He died before he could finish it. And then his wife basically kind of uh, piece together some of his notes, and et cetera, to get it in a uh, finished book form. And Joseph Schumpeter, you know, in a, in similar uh, to Rothbard, goes through all of the economists, not just Adam Smith. Uh, Rothbard is very influenced by Joseph Schumpeter's work. He doesn't agree with uh, everything he says or his general perspective. Schumpeter is often linked in, lumped in with the Austrians, but he's kind of more of a Walrasian in terms of his actual economic theory. And so, a couple of the things in this book that Rothbard is really influenced from, uh, influenced by is that one, you know, Schumpeter argued that the scholastics uh, were really sort of precursors to the Austrian school and that Smith, uh, Adam Smith, kind of uh, put economics on the wrong track. Now, Rothbard really takes Schumpeter's uh, argument about Smith and, and he amplifies it, but Schumpeter was uh, one of the first to really. Uh, well he wasn't really one of the first uh but he was one of the major figures in the mid uh 1900s to to criticize adam smith uh on this uh, on this point i think it's i'd always be interested to to see if if ludwig von mises ever read schumpeter's work uh i don't know if he did that might have just been because of personal animosity between them uh but regardless rothbard is very influenced uh by schumpeter's work and in many ways rothbard's book is kind of a Almost a commentary or an extension of of, of Schumpeter's work. Um, in terms of just like uh, economic thought, uh, there is the uh, the, the book, "The Worldly Philosophers," which is really kind of a popular book. It Came out uh, after Schumpeter's work, and it just kind of goes through the the, the great the, sort of the great men. And again, it's 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 written, I guess you could say, from a uh, a leftist perspective. And it, you know, he criticizes Adam Smith for his uh, free market ideas and so on. Um, and uh, you know, Keynes was great and all of that stuff. And, and Rothbard's book was originally supposed to be kind of a, a response to this, so to show that the, the free market economists were actually not just sort of ideologues, et cetera, and all of that stuff. Um, in terms of the the uh, the the, the Eklund book, A History of Economic Theory and Method. Uh, I have that book. That's a great book. It's just a it's a standard, uh, you know, a, a textbook on uh, economic the, the history of economic thought. It goes through various thinkers and uh, the ideas that they came up with and and all of that. And it's you know, it's got a very um, uh, uh, exhaustive uh, bibliography. And uh, it's unfortunate. You know, because obviously a lot of their book deals with economic thought after the marginal revolution. It's unfortunately Rothbard did not get around to uh, uh, basically uh, uh, write about that in any uh, in any extensive length. And then I guess another economic uh, history of economic thought book that's it's very important is the Mark Blau book, Economic Theory in Retrospect. And this is a more advanced. Uh, history of thought, in that what he does is he goes through each of the major thinkers. It's gone through several editions uh, as well. It, it goes through each of the major thinkers and he tries to describe their theory using modern neoclassical uh, price theory. So uh, explaining Adam Smith's uh, sort of labor theory or value, or uh, what some people have called the labor theory of value using uh, um, you know, mainstream price theory, and et cetera. And, going through each of the thinkers, and so on. Uh, those are some of the main history of economic thought books that have really, uh, you know, stood the test of time, so to speak. And it's not just a history of economic thought on a, a specific topic, but it really goes through all of the major thinkers.
0: Well, I want to mention to our audience who's listening is we have this book available free online, a beautiful Uh, PDF format you know we don't have it in HTML because Elgar owns that but we have it in a PDF format so you can read this book if you're interested as I go through it over a series of shows I think Patrick will do about four shows uh, on this book maybe if if you'll be be willing to do another show or two Um, so you know We'll link to that PDF, so I don't want people to think that they have to buy it and wait for it in physical form. They can be reading along and checking it out. It's really a zesty read. Um, two more quick things I wanted your take on from the introduction. I mean, first of all, this is you know Rothbard cho- chooses to say it's an Austrian perspective, which means um, you get you f- you get a sense of of uh, Rothbard the polemicist a bit in the introduction. And two, I I want to th- know whether you think. Uh, His sort of overarching thesis that looking back at economics is really a wrestling match between the subjectivism of the uh, marginal revolution and then the labor cost idea, uh, which has its origins in Adam Smith and then later reaches fuller expression in Marx. Is that a good way to look at economics or did, did Rothbard maybe given the benefit of hindsight now oversimplify things? Okay.
1: Yeah. So, in terms of his, his obviously explicit kind of, it's, it's, it's an Austrian work. Rothbard wanted to analyze uh, the development of economic thought from the perspective of the, the body of economic theorems that Mises had developed in Human Action and Rothbard had developed in Man, Economy, and State, particularly uh, the latter, obviously, because that, that's what Rothbard wrote. And, you know, sort of analyze, okay. So, what theorists could be considered pre-Austrian? Uh, what theorists could be considered, say, pre-Keynesian or you know, pre-neoclassical? So, what theorists emphasized the importance of the entrepreneur in uncertainty? What theorists sort of denigrated the entrepreneur and kind of focused on long-run equilibrium uh, uh, value? So, naturally, from this perspective, Rothbard is going to praise certain thinkers. That a mainstream thinker, or a mainstream uh, historian of economic thought, excuse me, uh, would not, because they obviously don't find those ideas important. So he wanted to go through, and he wanted to see: okay, uh, were there other Austrians or proto-Austrians before uh, Karl Menger and the famous you know, founding of, of the Austrian School in uh, 1871? And Rothbard's answer, building off of other theorists such as Joseph Schumpeter and Emil Couter, was an emphatic yes. It's that. Uh, traditionally, economics is seen as beginning with Adam Smith, and Rothbard wanted to uh, say that this wasn't the case. I mean, really, the, the whole volume one is, in many ways, uh, a massive book before Adam Smith, going through uh, famous, you know, grou- groups of thinkers like the Scholastics, etc., in trying to show how they uh, foreshadowed many ideas and how other thinkers kind of directed economics on the wrong path. This kind of returns to the Whig theory of history uh, concepts that I mentioned earlier on how economics does not always develop in a linear uh, fashion. There's, there's sort of zigs and zags. And so one of the major uh, sort of, I guess you could say, um, uh, the, the themes throughout the book is, as you mentioned, is that Rothbard uh, could distinguish between two groups of, of, of theorists. So the first group emphasized uh, how utility or subjective value determines the price of a good, while other groups of thinkers would emphasize how something like labor toil, uh, the the labor theory of value determines the price of a good. The emphasis, of course, subjective theorists were looking at sort of prices in the short run, real world prices, while the other groups of theorists, such as Adam Smith or really David Ricardo, were kind of focusing on more long run uh, equilibrium values. So. One of the things to, to kind of uh, spice up the thesis even more is that Rothbard, building off of Emil Cowdor, uh, who who wrote uh, some some important uh, articles, I think one of them is called "The Genesis of the Marginal Utility Theory" and then the retarded acceptance of the marginal utility theory, uh, showing how well the, the the subjective value theorists were uh, they, they they were um, uh, they were Catholics. They sort of harken to an Aristotelian uh, view of the world. Uh, and that made them to, to focus on how things like happiness, aka, as economists call it, utility, uh, was important for determining uh, the, the the prices of goods. While the classical economists, most famously, uh, most famously know, you know, known for the labor theory of value, uh, came from sort of a Calvinist background, that kind of denigrated, uh, sort of downplayed happiness. And it was emphasize the importance of things like hard work and savings and toil and you know breaking your back uh, so to speak, etc. and that kind of uh, you could kind of show a, a, a sort of a, a path all right like the how economic thought developed. And I believe Rothbard if, if he was if, if he lived long enough to write volume three, he would have tried to bring in Alfred Marshall into this because Alfred Marshall famously kind of destroyed the marginal revolution by sort of resurrecting or subsuming it in with classical economics. Uh, I, I think it's an important uh, theory. I think um, it's something that it definitely kind of, when you want to understand why people developed ideas in the way they did, it does play a role. I think as time goes on, the religious element uh, can matter less uh, simply because religion played less of a uh, of, of of a factor, but it, it it is it is important that you know a major uh, theme of the book is sort of the diamond water paradox. So if utility is really important, then you know why are diamonds uh, 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 valued so much more than water, even though water is is so much more useful uh, than than diamonds, and this is something that. Really, a lot of people struggled from, and it it took the the, the discovery of marginal utility, so to speak. Uh, It's an important thing to note. You know, there are these two divergent paths. And in many ways, uh, Adam Smith did sort of uh, move economics away from studying short term prices determined by utility in favor of long run equilibrium value.
0: Well, Patrick, to be fair, it's what is it, 2021 and we're still struggling with the labor theory of value or the cost theory.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I don't think we'll stop doing that anytime soon,
0: unfortunately. Well, one thing that struck me about this book, you know, I've read... Uh, Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty. I've read your Resurrected Fifth volume. Um, I've read your work with Rothbard's work, which you've edited on the Progressive Era. And what's so amazing about him is his ability to contextualize his facility for and, it, for, and his willingness to discuss for example, religion. The, there's been a lot of tensions in in uh, US history, and of course, in European history, which informs economics uh, between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, and he's goes back to the medieval period here, the Christian Middle Ages, the Renaissance, then forward into into the Spanish scholastics. And it's I think it's very interesting that he just did this so fearlessly without any of those niggling fears you would have today about someone saying, oh, you know, stay in your lane.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, he... He he was never afraid to sort of branch out into go into other disciplines, uh economic you know, history, history of thought, uh, bring in you know knowledge of, of religion as motivations, etc. Uh, I believe in, in 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 what the one of the forewords to his books, I think egalitarianism is a revolt against nature and other essays. He sort of talks about this where people said, No, why don't you just stick to economics, so to speak? Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, Rothbard realized the bigger picture is actually. You know, he always wanted to develop what he called sort of a science of liberty in that actually all of these disciplines are related you know economics is tied in with philosophy and history and political science etc uh, that's why it was originally called political economy which I think in many ways is, 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 is a very nice way of, of describing it It shows how all you know a lot of these social sciences are are related and yeah Rothbard uh, didn't you know he 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 didn't just stick to economic theory he looked into the history of economic thought and in doing so he also brought in a lot of stuff about religion and other sorts of motivating factors that you know do play a role in determining what people in the real world thought not just people hypothetical people in you know laboratory experiments or just uh, et cetera. and yeah that was that was a big strength he was very interested in religion um, especially with the Progressive Era, when he wanted to show how uh, you know post millennial Pietism uh, motivated a lot of government intervention, uh, it was a big it was a big factor in Rothbard's uh, overall perspective. It was the, the the influence of not just like financial or pecuniary motives, uh, but also uh, religious uh, motives.
0: Well, I want to wet people's appetite for this book. I think they're going to benefit from it. I think they're going to enjoy it as well. But volume one alone is over 500 pages. So we're going to split this up. We're going to do a second show uh, on volume one next week, also with Dr. Patrick Newman. And, you know, Patrick, it's great to have you as a historian, somebody who who really knows this stuff in context. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about things like the ancient Greeks. We're going to talk about the Christian Middle Ages, uh, the Renaissance, the Spanish scholastics, and some of the tensions Uh, between Protestants and Catholics. We're going to talk about mercantilism. Uh, We're going to talk about Richard Cantillon and the French physiocrats, Turgot, the Scottish Enlightenment, and then, you know, before we even get to Adam Smith. So there's a lot of great stuff here. Uh, We're going to link to the book if you're interested in purchasing it. We're going to link to the free PDF, which I mentioned. If you're interested in getting into this book and maybe rolling up your sleeves and reading some of it before our show next week, And I think uh, we'll also link to the new and upcoming book from Dr. Patrick Newman, our guest, which is called titled Cronyism in America. And so we are going to roll that book out at our event in Florida later this fall. And uh, we're very excited to have uh, another of Patrick's own works. He's done so much work with Rothbard and uh, deciphering Rothbard. So, Patrick, uh, I want to thank you for your time today. I'm excited about your new book. I'm excited... Uh, that you're going to be here to help me get through uh, this uh, really enormous work by Rothbard. And I want to encourage ladies and gentlemen to uh, consider taking a look at it in in the show notes. And all that said, uh, Dr. Newman, and to our listeners, have a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.